Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. Uh, One of my favorite movies of all time is a movie by the name of The Gladiator with Russell Crowe, and uh, warning, this is not a good movie for children because it's full of violence, okay? But, as I mentioned before, I enjoy a good adventure story, and it's a good adventure story. Um, It portrays gladiators in the Roman Colosseum. And before the fight, all of the gladiators turn towards the emperor in the audience and they say, we who are about to die salute you. And then they go to war in the Colosseum, death for game. And when the gladiators fight, when he's just about to defeat his enemy and deal the final death blow, he stops and everybody turns to the emperor in his box seat. And the emperor sticks out his thumb like this. Thumbs up means have mercy, let him live. Thumbs down, put him to death. And he's got his thumb out, and the, in the whole Colosseum starts chanting, kill, kill, kill. Who's going to live and who's going to die? Now, I recognize that's a really violent and grotesque picture, okay? But we're at a place in the Esther story at which a person is about to die. And up until that moment, it's not clear whether it's going to be Esther or Haman. And to help you understand the tension, I need to review the story a little bit. Our story takes place in the palace of King Ahasuerus, who is the emperor of the Persian Empire, and he rules in the capital city of Susa. This is the biggest empire in that day. Esther, who is the wife of the king and queen of the kingdom, has never ever told her husband that she is Jewish. Haman is the king's right-hand man, his number one counselor, and the king seldom makes any kinds of decisions without consulting his counselors, and Haman loves when people bow down before him, so much so that he made it a law in the palace. And Mordecai, Esther's adoptive father, a Jewish man who works in the palace, refuses to bow down to Haman, which made Haman furious that he absolutely insane that he, so furious that he actually tricks the king into issuing an edict to have a certain undesirable people group gathered up, uh, put to death, and then all of their belongings gathered up and put into the treasuries of the empire. And the king signs off on it, not knowing that he has signed the death warrant for all the Jewish people, and not knowing that his wife, Esther, is Jewish. Esther knows now that she must take a stand. And so she throws two banquets to get King and Haman ready for her special request. 
And you can listen to our podcast on YouTube to hear those teachings from weeks past. Today, we see what happened during Esther's second banquet. And you will remember from last week that earlier that very same day, Haman had received a shock. He had come to the palace first thing in the morning in order to get the king's permission to put Mordecai to death. But that very night, before Haman arrives, the king couldn't sleep, and he has read to him the annals or the chronicles of the kingdom of Persia, and finds out that Mordecai had uncovered a plot to have the king killed, and Mordecai had rescued the king from, from the plot, and Mordecai had never been rewarded for that rescue. And so the king invites Haman in and says, I need you to go out and honor Mordecai as the guy who rescued me many years ago that I've neglected to do. And when Haman gets home from that humiliating experience and tells his wife and friends, they predict that this is the beginning of his downfall. And just as he's talking about this with his friends, after honoring Mordecai all day long, the escort comes to take Haman to the banquet of the king and of Esther. And what's going to happen? In today's scene, Haman, the king, and Esther are all dining together. And the wine is being poured liberally, and the king is feeling relaxed and generous. And he asks Esther, what is her wish? What, and what is her request? And he promises to give it to her up to half of his kingdom. Now, Esther has to play it really, really carefully here. Haman wrote the edict to kill the Jews, but the king had signed off on it. And he, she is going to, how is she going to ask the king without blaming him for her situation? In verses 3 or 4, she says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish, the same words the king used, and my people for my request, the same words the king used. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to annihilated. And the words destroyed, killed, and annihilated are the very same words that's the reading of the edict itself. She asks the king to spare her life and the life of her people. Haman was chanting, kill, kill, kill. Would the king now side with Haman or Esther? Who's going to get the thumbs down? Who's going to get the thumbs up? The king obviously doesn't remember the words of the edict that he signed off on. Because he is immediately enraged and says, Who? Who did this? Where are they? And she answers, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Strike two for Haman. He didn't see that one coming. The enraged king steps out of the palace and retreats to the garden to think about his dilemma. What is he going to do about this? He doesn't render a decision right away. Haman knows that the king is like putty in the hands of his counselors because he's been one of those counselors. And he's been disgraced. And he decides to stay with Esther 
to plead for his life. Now, you need to know some very important cultural details about the harem of the king of Persia. It was considered completely inappropriate for a man who was not the, for anyone other than a man, any, any man other than the king to be alone in the room with a woman from the king's harem. Haman should have immediately dismissed himself when the king left. Instead, he stays in the room to plead with Esther. Second rule about the king's harem. Even when the king is there, a man should not have come within seven footsteps of any woman in the king's harem. Now, when the king returns from the garden, Haman is on or next to the queen's couch, no doubt blubbering and acting in an uncontrolled manner, pleading for his life. And when the king walks in and sees the scene, his immediate impression is the absolute worst. And Haman is trying to take advantage of the queen in his absence. And his rage flares right back up again. And he says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Thumbs up for Esther. She's going to live. Thumbs down for Haman. The next action is Haman being swarmed by some kind of guards. They throw a sack over his head. They escort Haman away. And it says one of the king's eunuchs makes a suggestion. A eunuch was a man who was entrusted with the care of the king's harem because he was a castrated man. And the eunuch says, oh, uh, Haman had built this gallows. It's 75 feet tall. It's on his property. He was going to use it to hang Mordecai. And when the king hears this, he goes, that'll do. And the selfsame gallows that, Mordecai, that uh, Haman built to kill Mordecai, Haman himself is killed on. The story has worked out better than Esther ever could have imagined. Thumbs down for Haman. He will die. It is an amazing tale of intrigue and reversal. And the unwritten main character of the story, God, has vindicated Esther and Mordecai, and Haman receives what is due him for his actions. From this particular scene in our story, I'd like to highlight two big ideas this morning. The first one is this. In God's world, sin always leads to death. In God's world, sin always leads to death. Now, we've talked about this before, but Haman, as a person, is consumed with pride. The whole story arises because he wants everyone in the palace to bow down before him. But one man, Mordecai, will not bow down. And because Mordecai will not bow down, Haman hates him. And in his hatred and in his thirst for power, he decides to kill not only Mordecai, but the entire Jewish race from which Mordecai comes. Then he uses sleight of hand 
to persuade the king that a particular race of troublesome people in the empire are expendable, and we would benefit by killing them off and taking all that belongs to them and putting it into the treasury. He gets the king to sign off on it without the king even knowing that he has issued a decree to kill all the Jewish people. And Haman's actions are so particularly selfish, so particularly dark and devious, and he is convinced that he is the one who's going to get away with it and be a big star in the Persia right next to the king. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a group of believers in the city of Rome, the letter to the Romans. And in chapter um, 8, verses 5 through 7, he talks about uh, something which it reads in our text, the flesh. But when when you see the word flesh there, read sinful nature, okay? It says this, For those who live according to the flesh, or the sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh, the sinful nature. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, the sinful nature, is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the sinful nature, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You know, for a while, sin may really seem to pay off. I am a free entity. I can do what I want as long as I don't hurt anybody. I can party with my friends as long as nobody gets hurt. I can have lots of girlfriends and boyfriends and sleep with whoever I want. That's not hurting anybody as long as it's consensual. I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to become famous. I'm going to become rich. The world is my oyster. You have to seize life and seize the opportunities and seize the power. And so often, people believe that we can do whatever we want. God can't tell me what to do. Nobody's going to rule my life. I'm the one who is never going to get caught. But as Christians, we believe that God made the world. God rules the world. And that every person will one day give account to God for what they have done with the life that God gave them. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that I am the one who is not going, I'm the one who's going to get away. But like Haman, when God calls us to account, we will not get away. Another side of this is that as believers and as followers of Jesus, we can become overwhelmed by the collective power of sin in the world. It seems like all the people who are in power are like Haman, and the Hamans of the world are ruling the world, and we, the little people, are overcome and we are undone. 
And even though we are God's minority in this world, sin is so big, the devil himself is so big, and wicked people are so powerful that God has lost control, and we feel overwhelmed, afraid, angry, and alone. And this part of Esther's story lets us know that in God's world, sin, as bad as it is, does not win. People will not escape the justice of our God. Wrong will not rule the day forever, and evil will not overcome God's people. Though we will struggle greatly, the Hamans of this world will not get away from the righteousness of God. And this is somewhat of a simplification, but I believe that it holds true. In the Christian view of the world, either Jesus pays for your sin because you turn and surrender to Him for forgiveness and transformation, or you will pay for your sin before the judgment seat of God. Either Jesus paid for your sin, or you will. And if that frightens you today, may I encourage you to flee to Jesus. And find the mercy that you need while that mercy can be found. Acknowledge your sin before God as He has shown it to you. Cling to Jesus' death as the only hope for freedom and forgiveness. And place your trust on Him that He can transform your life from the inside out. This is the best way to deal with the sin that you may recognize in your life before you meet God face to face. Because in God's world, sin always leads to death. That's a cheery note. The second thing I want to point out to you, which is, will feel more constructive, is that a good leader identifies with her people. A good leader identifies with her people. In verses 3 or 4, we read these words from Queen Esther to the king. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. This is Esther's shining moment in the whole entire book. Even though she has in many ways been the victim of the evil empire, Persia, being inducted into the king's harem and becoming the king's wife, she actually now becomes a true leader, a true queen of her people, Israel. Up until this point, the king and the rulers of the empire had no idea that Esther was an Israelite. And she reveals her Jewish identity and takes her stand with her people, 
for better or for worse. And God honors that stand by vindicating her in the eyes of her husband and overcoming the evil plots of Haman. She placed her life on the line with the hope of rescuing her faith family, and it would appear that she is going to do just that. True leadership means that you represent the interests in the well-being of your people. Esther rose to the occasion. Haman saw leadership as the power to get others to honor him, As a leader, Esther sees her position as a means of caring well for her people, and she represents Israel's interests as a queen in the Persian Empire, and she represents those interests well. Two Sundays ago, when I was out with COVID, Pastor Rick led us through the dedication of the leaders of West Church. Thank you for doing that. And one of the passages that he read to us is from the biography of Jesus, known as the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking to his 12 disciples about leadership. And this is what he said. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles or rulers of the nations lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the church, Leadership is about serving God's people to the best of our ability. This doesn't mean that we always agree and give everybody everything that they want, just like a parent doesn't always agree with their child and give them all the candy they want, okay? But we seek with God's help to be truly loving and supporting and helpful And we use our position and our authority to do good for the people of God, not just what we want. And leaders exist for the sake of the people, not the people for the sake of the leaders. And the reason why is that the ability to lead or having a leadership position doesn't make me or anybody else better than you. I am not more holy or more godly because I'm a pastor. Just ask those who know me best. Now, I should be godly, and I'm not trying to be foolish, but it's not my leadership role that makes me godly. It's knowing God as a person and seeking to please Him and obey Him as a person. Not my title, not my position, not my education, or the initials in front of my name. Being able to lead and having a position to lead does not make you a more spiritual person. Rather, I need to be a spiritual person who leads and holds a position in the church. And that holds true for any of you who hold a role of leadership or service in West Church. Esther identifies with her people 
and defends them as their leader. And may I say to you that Esther becomes her absolutely best self as she identifies with her community. Our modern culture glorifies the self. I'm an individual. Nobody can tell me what to do. I am who I say I am. I am who I believe I am. I am who I think I am. And nobody can tell me anything different. But even God himself is one God, but three persons. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that our one God is a tri-personal community. And humans being made in the image of God are to be persons in community. Part of who we are And how God made us is to be part of a community. And being in community shapes us and forms us and makes us better individuals. Learning how to live well with other people, learning how to love others, makes us better than we ever could have been in isolation from one another. And Esther discovers her very best self as a leader in her community. The church is called to be the community, the faith family of those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus. It is in the midst of being a community that our worst self is sometimes exposed so that God may bring out of that our best selves. You know, we we learned this. We learned this during the quarantines of COVID. Being isolated isn't really good for us. It fostered anxiety, it fostered loneliness, it fostered isolation, it fostered polarization, it wasn't good for education. There is now a recent study coming out of Harvard that being a part of a religious community, not even necessarily a Christian community, is better for your physical and mental health. You know, that's amazing. Science is discovering that religious affiliation is good for you. Who would have thought of that? He who must not be named God. Now some will say, well, church can be hard and church can be messy. And I'll give you that. In community, you discover that I have some rough edges and I discover that you have some rough edges. But because we are called by our Savior, Jesus, to love one another, guess what happens? We learn how to repent, we learn how to ask for forgiveness, we learn how to hold one another accountable, we learn how to forgive, and we learn how to accept one another. We become better people if we allow God to work in our lives and through others' lives to help us. We can become our best selves in the community as Esther did. So this scene from the story of Esther teaches us about the deceptive, destructive, and deadly nature of sin 
and the redemptive nature of identifying with a faith community. Ultimately, Esther's choice to identify with her people and to put her life on the line is a foreshadowing of what Jesus, the Son of God, did for us. Jesus left the glory, the comfort, and the honor of the throne room of his Father and came down into this broken and sinful world by his own divine choice as the Son of God. And he lived among us and he was subject to misunderstanding, rejection, false accusation, and ultimately death at the hands of his own people, his own leaders. And he did this to redeem us. Jesus humbled himself and dwelt among us and died for our sins and rose from the dead to forgive us for our sins and to give us a forever life that starts from the point at which we believe in him and lasts on forever. He identified with death so that we might overcome death. And he identified with our sin so that we might be forgiven. Do you know Jesus as your personal Redeemer? He's the ultimate Redeemer who identifies with his people in order to save us from our sin and our selfishness and our pride and set us free to give us a new life. And if you have not yet experienced him that way, I encourage you to do so today. Surrender your sin to him, welcome him into your life, and ask him to make you new from the inside out. And you will live forever and God will spare you with his thumbs up. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, it is a joy to be here together in community with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the magnificent story of Esther and how you vindicated her against all evil, Lord. And you caused her in her weakness to take a stand and to shine by your grace. Huh. God, this world is a scary and difficult place. And sometimes it's quite overwhelming. So we ask that in the mighty name of Jesus, you would help us to stand wherever that stand would be. To stand in community to stand together, to love one another in all of the challenges and all of the joys of what that means. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.